As Betsy comes to read the scripture this morning, this is one of the few places where we find out that Jesus had a different career than pastoral ministry or as doctor, but that maybe there was something more to his life. And then it's a scripture that defines the way that he teaches his disciples and what he does with his life. It's a phenomenal scripture. Listen for the details. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to him, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. So again, I, I would love to have you just think back on your childhood a little bit. And, uh, and for some of us, as we think about those memories, they're very positive. We, just incredible memories of things like camping trips or sporting events or all kinds of things like that. For others of us, those memories are not as positive. Think back even on what your parents did for a living. For some of us, uh, again, they could have been blue-collar workers who were doing construction or those kinds of things. For others of us, could have been engineers or teachers or all manner of things. Think about the roles that you saw in your home, in your household, and who played what role. Think about how your parents argued or if your parents argued and how they even resolved or didn't resolve some of those arguments. It's amazing to me that, that those things do so much to shape us, as well as, as we know, our DNA. I was listening to a study day before yesterday about the fact that they're now finding that even in one generation past, the DNA, the makeup of, of the DNA can shift and change. It's phenomenal what's going on, but every one of those things, every single one of those things, help define who we are today. And then I, I want you, and for some of us, this is really hard, and I don't mean because of age. Think back on your teen years. 
Are you there yet? <laughs> Things like middle school. I've shared with you, I was the second smallest kid at Highland Junior High School. And that carries a tremendous amount of stuff. Beat up, put down, uh, and again, I, I've shared with you before, Colin Fender, I still remember, I want to look him up, was the smallest kid at Highland. If you know Colin, tell him hi for me. But that's who it was, and that's how significant, and he and I became friends just to try and protect each other. Do you remember the put-downs and all those kinds of things that we had to survive in middle school? And, and then move on to high school, and, and you know, all I, the word that I want to just have you think about is, what did you experiment with in high school? And how did that influence who you were to become? Those are amazing, <laughs> formative years that help us define who we are and even define who we are not. Well, again, as I said, I, I hadn't really thought about what it must have been like for Jesus. Firstborn son, living in Nazareth. And how might the things that were happening around him influence not only who he was then, but who and what he would become? I want to talk first just a little bit about Nazareth. And I've shared a little bit before that Nazareth was this tiny little town up in the middle kind of of Galilee. And there was nothing there. It sat on a ridge of rock. And so they couldn't even provide enough agriculture for their, own, for their own living, for themselves. And what they would do is they would try and bring in soil and, and begin to grow crops in their homes. But I, I want to share that, that the home, a home would be about the size of this area of the sanctuary right here. Um, maybe back to the other side of the closet there, but, but they were not large. Most of them were made out of um, mud and straw, most of them had beams that went across so that there was a platform on the ceiling. Most of them not only had small gardens, but also the, the livestock that every family had, goats for milk and other things, lived in the house. No pastures, no none of that. They lived in the house. I just want you to get that for a second. Did I mention that they lived in the house? and that they do and did everything that animals do today and did. The cooking took place on the roof. Why? Because it was the one opportunity to get away from what the animals did in the house. And by the way, in that house was only one, probably, window. So very little ventilation because that was the only thing that kept the home cool in that incredible sun that would bake those homes. And so the cooking would be done up on the roof and, and any lounging, if there was time and there wasn't much, would take place up on the roof in the open. And so what, what happened was the roles in that time were also clearly defined. And to be a, a carpenter, as Joseph was supposedly a carpenter, and again, the word is, we don't really have a word that describes adequately what that meant. Uh, we don't have a word in English. Really, the more accurate term would be builder. And by the way, the expectation of the firstborn son was always to move into the same industry as his father as an apprentice. 
and be trained that way by his father. He was a builder, Joseph was. And what that meant was he worked with more than wood, but with wood he would create everything, fencing, furniture, toys, kitchen utensils, anything that would have been made out of wood, even plow handles. But it wasn't just about wood. It was also about stone, masonry work. It was, it was about building those homes of straw and repairing them because they always needed to be repaired. It was about learning how to work with metal as he would create plows for the few places in that region that would do that. And because of the size of Nazareth, and most scholars will say maybe 100 people at some times in history, maybe 300, but it was a small town. And oh, by the way, any of you who have grown up in a small town know what it's like to grow up in a small town. Everything is known in a small town. And if it's not known, it's made up, right? The communication is always there and always surrounding you. And so here was Jesus. And, and so he apprenticed with his father. But the, the other thing I have to share with you is growing up in that time, I hate to tell you this, parents, but there were no diapers. Do you know what, you know what the moms did? Because there were no diapers? And I don't want to be graphic here, but they carried around a ceramic pot and did something like this. Now, did you hear Did you hear all the names that were mentioned as Betsy read? I mean, there were like five to seven children. Can you imagine how frazzled the mother would have been with that clay pot? Because birth happens sometimes one year apart. It was one of those things. No diapers. And the children had to learn that that's not how it's done. Moms wanted to do more than carry the clay pot. And so they did learn. But the other thing to share is there were no septic tanks. There were no sewers. You would take that pot and you would go out back and you would pour it out and reuse it. There's so many other graphic things I could explain that I'm not going to this morning. But, but every child had a role. And again, the oldest son's role was to apprentice with the father. There was, there was cooking to be done. There was cleaning to be done. There, there, was, there was gardening to be done. Every child had a role. Well, for Jesus, his role was to learn carpentry. Now, the other thing I've got to share just really quickly, particularly to our teenagers here, there was no adolescence, especially for the boys, because at 12 years old, they became men. It was that rite of passage. They became men. At 13, they would be expected to be married. At 13, they could vote. At 13, they became a significant part of the synagogue and the decision-making that happened. At 13, they would be able, even in small towns like Nazareth, to be able to speak Aramaic and be able to read the scriptures and in some cases even be able to speak some Greek. And... At 12 years old, guess what? The women became, the, 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 those young women became women. And at even that age, they would marry. There was no such thing as adolescence. There may have been physically, but expectations were huge that that's when they became adults. 
Nazareth would not have been able to support both Joseph and Jesus as carpenters or as builders, or another word would be handymen. And so there had to be work in other places. And what happened to be going on at that time is Galilee had been basically swept off the planet by Rome, and, and, and Herod had died, and there was revolts, and there was war, and there was all kinds of things. And the destruction was massive, including a town four miles away, four miles to the west called Sepphoris. Herod Antipas, who was the Roman kind of representative Jew, worked with Rome to rebuild Sepphoris. And that would require every single handyman, person, builder, whatever you want to call it, to go to Sepphoris to be a part of that. Jesus was probably somewhere around five or six years old. Now, whether he went with Joseph or not, it just depended. But you know that he would go to visit. I want you to think for just a second in that time of what he would have seen as a child. Probably for the first time he would have seen bloodshed. He would have seen cruelty. He would have seen abuse. He would have seen the grandiose buildings of gold and granite and all of those things. He would have seen them. And even as a child, he would have incessantly asked that question, why? He would have asked that question, why, Daddy? Why are those people so rich And yet I look at us, and it's hard not to compare. He would have been asking why over and over and over again. Then I want to jump ahead 10 or 11 years. Because it took that long to build a city like Sepphoris, particularly on the foundations that had been destroyed. And now we look to the east, 12 to 14 miles away. And Herod Antipas, who just desperately wanted to to be in favor of Rome... Rome has just gone through this transition from Julius Caesar to Tiberius as emperor. And so he builds the city, John, if you can pull that city up. He builds this city of Tiberius in honor of the emperor. And I, I don't know that it looks like much, but I want you to look at this. The arena up, on, up to the left and the temples and just the building there comparing it to Nazareth. Look at the port and and the piers and all that would have gone into that. In this construction project, Jesus would have been a teenager. Now think about that and think about the why questions again, this time with the maturity of a teenager, one who is expected to be a man. And now he also again sees the divest difference in poverty and wealth. He sees and knows and begins to hear the stories of the Sicarii, the assassins. He begins to understand the zealots, and he is now in the midst of a place that is going to explore all kinds of schools of philosophy. He's going to see the power of Rome and recognize it in much different ways than he would have as a child. And begins again to ask the why question, but there is one more thing. We have to understand about his childhood. And that is that every year they went to the temple in Jerusalem. A four-day trip. These people were not rich by any stretch of the imagination. I described what their home would have been. And now be that teenager going to the temple, right? 
going to the temple in Jerusalem, and it was unbelievable as you walked up and you saw the 40 to 50 foot walls of white stone. And then you walk in and you see the gold encrusted columns. You see the incredible wood, the architecture. And then you realize why you're there. You're there because every year you have to atone for your sins. And the way that you atone for your sins is by offering first yourself for purification and then to offer sacrifices. Twelve years old, think about this for a second. You watch as your parents, and particularly your father, looks at his purse and continually tries to count the pieces of currency that are in there. Four days' journey would have cost them quite a bit. Then they have to find a place to stay in Jerusalem. And there he is again counting to make sure because he has to have enough left for why they're there. And so then they walk into the temple and the first thing they have to do is take out the money and kind of budget and hand it off to the money changers so that they can exchange that money for temple currency. And by the way, there is a tax for that. So it costs you money to make that exchange. Then you have to take that money and offer it to a priest so that you become purified. And sometimes that takes three days. And you have to pay for each one of those days. Then once you're purified, you can come back into the temple, go back to the priest, or go back to that that place where the money changes are because that's where the animals are sold for sacrifice. And you notice again your father looking carefully into his purse and pulling out enough for two turtle doves. And yet you look around at 12 or 13 years old and you see how many people are offering up lambs or even the wealthy who offer up full steers. And you wonder, why is it that we can only do this? And you begin to compare yourself with those and the inequity of it all. And you know that there's not much left because you've watched that purse shrink. And then you have to get home. You have to get home. And by the time you get home, there may be nothing left. And there again, you begin to question why. Why this? Is this really the God that we believe in that requires us to become even poorer than we already are? How can you not compare yourself to the wealthy for whom that is just nothing to buy a lamb or a huge steer? And you look even at those around you and you realize in the midst of that that by comparison even you are wealthy as are your parents because there are folks much, much poorer than you who barely have enough to offer anything. And you begin to question the whole idea of God. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If this is what this is, then why would I want to believe in a God who costs us like this? And particularly those who are more filled with poverty. Sepphoris. Tiberius. The temple. These were the things that surrounded Jesus in the midst of his childhood. Plus, he looked around his own family and saw that he had five or six or seven siblings. 
and part of his responsibility was to help feed them. And I wonder. What are the things that help define you? What about your family? What did you see growing up that would cause you to even come to a church on a Sunday morning when the Seahawks are playing? And what does this mean for us then? Because we're going to go deeper and deeper into this around who Jesus was and why he did what he did. But this begins to lay the foundation for that very much the way that the foundation has been laid for you in your life, friends. I absolutely believe that what Jesus experienced helped define who he would become. And by the way, I'll give you a hint for a couple weeks from now when I talk about the miracles. One of the things that separated Jesus from anyone else in his time was that the healing that he offered to others, he offered it for free. And never once did he take credit for offering that healing when every other person around him took money for those kinds of miracles and took credit for them. He always offered it back as a gift to them from God through him. And we'll come to terms with that later. We have to ask the question, where was God in all that? And we also have to ask the question, where are we today as we see the things that are happening around us and hear of more shootings and hear of all of the things and the bombings and things, where are we as we experience those things around us? What will we do? Will you pray with me? God, history is an amazing thing, and it's, it's incredible to be able to uncover enough to see what was happening in that time. Help us understand that we too are influenced, that we too are there so that we can pass what Jesus passed on to his disciples, and then they passed on, we now have the responsibility of not only passing on to the children of this church, but to those in the community and the world who need that kind of peace. God, help us see clearly our role in all of it and to respond to what we see. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.